What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Imagine growing up learning that sex is shameful. Okay, you probably don't have to imagine that part, unfortunately. And then becoming a therapist and sex worker in adulthood and raising sex-positive kids while sharing about that journey with the masses. So goes the journey of jet-setting Jasmine, or JSJ, as some folks call her. Jasmine is so thoughtful, knowledgeable, and passionate, and we had a really rich conversation last month. I'm excited to share her wisdom with you all today from ways she challenged damaging messages she learned early on to the healing potential of kink and fetish play. We also explored racism and sexual liberation, practical ways to raise kids who feel empowered and safe in their bodies, and her top advice for reducing shame and feeling more sexually free, no matter where we are on our own journeys. Jasmine told me she grew up learning that sex is bad and something to be ashamed of, something you sort of stumble upon on your own and that leads to pregnancy and disease. There was really no focus on pleasure, and these messages played out in all sorts of ways. In my household, it was my mother and my three sisters, so four girls. It was just some small things like privacy. That was not allowed in our household. If you were taking too long in the bathroom, the door closed by accident or something. It was always like, what are you doing in there? Um, It was kind of like always already suggesting that we were doing something wrong with being alone with ourselves. It really does shape being able to pleasure self, spend time with self, being okay with being alone. A lot of our own personal and self-exploration really does set the roadmap for how we interact with others in our interpersonal relationships, you know? And then one thing that I recall, and it's, it makes me laugh because now I actually use music to help have conversations with my children. I remember I was like seven or eight and I was singing Rick James' song, Super Freak. (laughs) It was a a popular song at the time. And I was in the car and I was just like, she's a super freak. (laughs) And I just got whacked right across my face. Don't say that word. What is wrong with you? And whenever we ask someone what is wrong with them, we are suggesting that something is wrong. Whether you believe it or not, someone else has identified that something is wrong with you. And at that age, it's like, I didn't know what I was saying. You're the adult playing the music, right? (laughs) How about you slap yourself for playing inappropriate music? And if I had memorized it, that means I had heard it many of times, you know? Instead of taking those opportunities, and I think, you know, I presented as a child many opportunities for my curiosity to be addressed, for the pace at which I was interested in exploring any and everything to to really be touched upon. 
it was met with resistance. It was met with punishment. It was met with shame. And as I've gotten older, I realized that these are just generational traumas passed down. These were also unexplored attitudes and, and behaviors of the adults in my family that, you know, it's just like unresolved trauma keeps on growing. It, you know, it's the best place for it. You know, just go ahead and put it into the next portal of children and carry it on. And we see that in our culture. That's how we de developed culture, you know. It did not take Jasmine long to start challenging the harmful ideas about sex she was learning, or at least to find ways around them. You know, there became that, just like everything, like, oh, they don't want me to do that? Why? Or like, oh, that's for adults? Huh, interesting. I want to be an adult one day, right? Maybe I can start practicing now. So some early things that I remember is using furniture to masturbate. It's like, oh, I was told like it's nasty to put your hands down there. I shouldn't be touching myself. Fine, this couch will do. <laughs> and the thought of like, okay, if you're not explaining to me in context why masturbation is wrong, and you're just saying don't put your hands down there, it's dirty or disgusting or any of those really terrible words that were used to describe my genitals, it's like, fine, I, I won't. I'll do what you asked me to do. But I still have this like craving and this yearning in my body. So how can I do this without compromising your request of my body? So I found, I found objects to rub up on and remains like a favorite pastime of mine is <laughs> hands-free orgasms. So fun. The best stress relief. It really, it is, right? And so creative too. Other things about pushing back, I remember starting to play like house and doctor and things like that and really being the one initiating those games with other children and really like kind of like, oh, well, if I have to be an adult to like feel this kind of closeness or this, whatever this thing is in me, then let's pretend to be adults because then you can, you know, you're playing, you're, you play cooking and that's okay. So maybe we can play kissing too. Just really taking things that were used to shame sex and trying to find a loophole. And I think, you know, we all do that where it's like, that's nasty, but I only do this, you know? And it's that kind of like that hierarchy. That's what I like to call it. That's really powerful. We find a way. We find a way because it's, it's natural. There are other things that I can, you know, remember, like, let's say the stove is hot, don't touch it. Fine, I won't touch it. I don't really have this natural yearning and urge to be burned by fire. But when it comes to like our expression around sex and sexuality, there is a very deep yearning and it happens so young and so naturally. I just sometimes I feel sad when it's like, what would that have been like to be able to explore those things within myself without having something or someone putting an unnatural pause to that development? Those curiosities and experiences around sexuality that Jasmine had early on continue to influence not only her personal journey, but her career path, especially in sex work, tremendously. My entire journey as a sex worker has been about my own exploration, my uninterrupted exploration around sex. I started this not as like, I'm an expert on sex. It's like, I want to be an expert on myself. And you can watch me take this journey if you would like. 
and like a couple hundred thousand people decided like, yeah, <laughs> we're with it. We'll take the journey with you. So yeah, all of this is being able to not even relearn, just unlearn some of the stigma that's attached to sex and sexuality, the socialization that has been placed on me as a woman, as a woman of color, as a woman of color in my household, as the youngest child, like all of these intersections and being able to unlearn those things and relearn them through my own paradigm, what I value, what my sexual values are. And then also just being able to, to serve giving people permission to do the same, you know, to give them a different voice of saying like, oh no, your hands are perfectly okay to use. There's been no evidence of blindness. There's been no evidence of, you know, there's not even evidence that your family won't love you anymore, you know, and, and even helping them look at, think of some of the horrendous things that have happened in, in your family and how your family has been resilient, forgiving, loving, moving on, we're just talking about you spending private time with yourself in your own apartment, you know, and, and when we start putting things in context and seeing people set free, it's really me offering what I would have liked, you know, growing up. So it definitely has an impact. Jasmine also works with couples in exploring fetishes, which is another often stigmatized topic. Some sex educators define fetish as something you need in order to experience arousal or orgasm not just a desire. But Jasmine uses a much broader definition that really encompasses anything that especially turns you on. The easiest way that I explain it is what is something that you enjoy outside of getting pregnant or getting someone pregnant? And people are like, oh my gosh, like all kinds of things. I'm like, boom, 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 there's your fetish. <laughs> there, that's, that's it. That's it. It really is in, um, getting sexual arousal from something that without the intention of procreation. It is this focus on, um, on sexual arousal, usually by an object or, again, something that does not involve reproduction and procreation. That's all of our sex. You're already doing it, right? Whatever that thing is. So when I say to someone, just kind of use an example, let's just say a straight white man. And, you know, I don't know anything about fetishes. I just like my sex, like, you know... <laughs> like meat and potatoes, right? Plain, right? No sides. You know, like, oh, like she's got a, a great set of tits or something like that, right? I'm like, that's it. Are you a breast man? Do breasts turn you on? What type of breasts turn you on? When do you get the most aroused by them? What do you like them to do to you? What do you like to do to them? And I'm like, we've sat here and completely defined what your fetish is. And now we can talk about other ways to explore it. When you think of breasts, what else do you think of? Um, what are the possibilities with breasts for you? And then like, we're no longer talking about like this creepy person who has a fetish that's like in a white van exposing themselves to people. Like we're talking about consensual, thoughtful, ethical ways of approaching things that turn you on. In an article in the publication Ebony, someone who worked with Jasmine in fetish training described it as a deeply healing practice. After a year of working with Jasmine, the writer Glamazon Taomi said she had not only learned about disparities in representation of people of color within the BDSM world, but, quote, witnessed the healing power that can come along with fetish play when led by the right teachers. When you're in a kink community that embraces fetish play and consent and everyone's emotional well-being, these spaces can be really healing, too. 
Research has shown that kink and BDSM activities like bondage, role-playing, sadomasochism, and consensual non-consent, which is basically where you mimic an act where one person has total control over the other person and it's all agreed upon in advance, can contribute to healing, interpersonal connectedness, and emotional resilience in trauma survivors. A planned quote-unquote attack, for example, in which you determine the outcome and you can rest easy knowing that you're safe, has helped some people heal from repercussions of sexual assault where none of that autonomy existed. During the pandemic in particular, some folks are engaging more in virtual kink and fetish play spaces through apps and websites. Jasmine doesn't see these forms of play and expression as a primary treatment for trauma. She pointed out that traumatic experiences should be processed with a professional in a professional environment whenever possible. That being said, you're not with your therapist 24-7, right? Um, And you actually have to learn how to use what you're doing in therapy into safe spaces. And it can be really challenging to find a safe space. I have found a lot of very, very cool places to explore sex and sexuality in the kink world or with people that consider themselves or identify as kinky. The reason why is because there's a little bit of a protocol around kink and fetish spaces that aren't in our normal dating spaces. And it's really important to make sure that a venue has all of these protocols because these spaces can vary a lot from other settings. So let's say at a nightclub, where I used to hang out at quite a bit, it was sort of the culture for someone to come up and like pat your butt, right? Or just like start dancing with you because they like the way you look. Or someone can get really, really drunk or on some type of substance and you kind of just like, oh, that person's really drunk. Can you like help get this guy off of me? You know, it became our culture that we accepted. And those are unsafe places for people who are oftentimes triggered by other people having autonomy of their body or just feeling unsafe and out of control, especially in a sexually charged environment. In safe kink spaces, on the other hand, the rules are on the wall, like literally on the wall. And there's a dungeon master making sure that everyone abides by them. A lot of negotiation takes place and you're welcome to be a voyeur if you'd prefer. If someone invites you to engage and you'd rather just watch an activity, you can say that. No thanks, I'm here to watch. Special attention is also placed on consent and safety in all areas, including before, during, and after types of play. All of this makes way for not only more comfort and fun, but for a lot of folks, healing. I have found that, you know, people who have lost their voice due to sexual assault or even the socialization of our sex and sexuality can find their voice again in kink spaces. Because to play with me, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions and I'm going to need you to articulate back to me what you like, what you don't like, what you want more of, what you want less of. And that's really empowering. And we don't get that in our kind of vanilla engagements. So I definitely encourage my clients to explore kink spaces to be able to hear their voice where it's accepted, encouraged, it's almost required. And then also to use sex work like, you know, cam models to practice, you know, saying some of the things that have been difficult for you to say to others when they're right there in your face. 
I see the use of kink to be tremendous and it can really get into places that therapists and doctors can't. Like we should not be spanking our clients, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's in the code of ethics, right? But um, to be able to offer a safe environment and a resource to your client and help them understand this is what it should look like. And in this space, you should be able to experience these things. And if you want to stop, um, it's part of the culture to be able to say no thank you and stop, which is not a part of our larger society's culture. So many parents struggle, as you mentioned, there's the intergenerational passing down of harmful messages. And on your Instagram, you have this phrase that I think is so powerful that we never hear, which is porn and parenting. And I imagine that brings up a lot of feelings from people. Mm -hmm. So porn and parenting is a really salacious way to say sex positive parenting, right? But it got your attention. So definitely running with that hashtag. It's so interesting that it even got dejected from Instagram. Our original account got shut down just from the name of the, the, the title, um, as if the two words can't go together, which is incredibly telling in itself. Because when do people access porn? Way early. The average age right now is nine years old. And I would go ahead and imagine that that has probably lowered when we are in this space right now where our kids are like, they are on their devices all the time now. You know, so there's no break at school. Everything is on the device, right? And so we're being sold sex constantly. Like you can't go on Facebook without something leading you at some point, you'll end up with a cam model. <laughs> if you let your, if you let your fingers just keep clicking, like you will eventually end up in a CD space. <laughs> and, and so when, when children access porn or porn is being used to either entertain or educate our children, whether we're involved or not, just like a kid sending a clip to another kid or being on TikTok and that type of thing. Whose responsibility is it to contextualize that, provide education, provide understanding, all the things as a parent? So that's kind of where like porn parents, all right? On top of the fact that our experience as parents, my partner King Noir and I are both adult entertainers and we get a lot of questions of like, aren't you scared your kids are going to be like you? I'm like, I'm a pretty cool person. Like, <laughs> It's incredible how we don't, I'm speaking as a culture, see the insult there. We just, we just go, of course you think that's horrible. How could you pass that on to your kids? Right. Um, and it's really interesting because, well, no, I don't want my children to be like me. I want them to be better versions of me, right? So when people say, like, aren't you afraid your kid is going to, like, get into the porn industry? I'm like, no, actually, if my child gets into the porn industry, she's going to do so freaking well because... I'm not hiding anything from her and I'm not ashamed of what I do. So that on top of the fact that how often do our kids want to be just like our parents anyways? It's like, okay, if my kid is just like me, then they, maybe they're going to be a therapist. That's fine. Maybe they're going to be a sex educator. That's cool too. But people always wonder like, how are you a porn star and a parent? And so we just decided we'll show you. We will show you how. And so on that page, it's like so boring in my opinion, because it's literally like us just being a family, you know, you're never going to see like us shooting a scene and our kids there. That's inappropriate. So that thing that your mind takes you to of like, oh God, their house must be, or the kids must run amok. No, I'm sorry to disappoint you. It looks just like your household with an exception of we're not shaming our children in advance of, of them determining what their sexual orientation or preferences are. We're not allowing 
the internet to provide education to our children around sex and sexuality. We are modeling positive behavior, healthy and safe practices in our household. Jasmine and her partner, King, have been traveling the world speaking about sex-positive parenting and ways anyone can start implementing it anytime. And I would personally say these tenants work really well if you're an aunt or an uncle or you have young people in your life in other capacities. A sex-positive parent doesn't say in the shower, don't touch yourself down there. You know, that's dirty. Same example that I gave you about my childhood. We say, oh, here's some soap. You can clean your whole body. Oh, you want to clean your penis right now? Good job cleaning your penis. Don't forget your butt. Or when I'm showering him and he looks up and he goes, he's like looking like, where's yours at? It's broken. When are you going to clean it, right? That's when Jasmine will say, oh, you're looking at my vulva. Mommy's going to clean herself. You clean your body, right? So we're not making these weird uh, nicknames for it. We are normalizing the human body and the functions of it. Um, We are giving him privacy as much as one can, right, in the shower or the tub, to explore his body. It's his. And if he's, like, pulling his pamper down in the middle of the living room at my mom's house, I don't go, what is wrong with you? Why would you do that? I say, oh, do you need to go to the bathroom? Because we keep our pants on when we're in the living room. Jasmine and King also instilled something they call no-no zones from very early on, something that's proven incredibly helpful along the way including currently with their 16-year-old, who Jasmine said is very particular about how she's touched. Wherever your no-no zone is, I will respect that. I will not touch it unless it is a life-threatening emergency. That means we respect that zone. That means if your parents, your siblings can respect that and you can create boundaries for your body growing up, you're going to be so prepared to create boundaries for your body out and about. And how many times have we as adult women and, and, you know, whoever's listening, not necessarily you and I, but as adults been in a compromising situation where we didn't like the way something felt, or we didn't really want to be touched just like that right there for that long. And we don't say anything. And so we are giving them the tools to be able to assert themselves and actually experience what does autonomy feel and look like from the you know, tender age of whatever, of, of two, even with the two-year-old, when we're tickling him or cuddling him and he's going like, no, no, that's a no, that's consent, you know? One thing I love about Jasmine's family is the way that you can see how these lessons and practices that she and her partner instilled from early on are playing out in young adulthood. The two-year-old is learning about consent, and their 20-year-old, who once was her own version of that toddler, is now asserting her wants and needs as a newbie adult, staking claim to that autonomy Jasmine mentioned. One example, she recently moved out. At the beginning of the pandemic, she was just like, I'm not going to be stuck in the house with y'all. <laughs> and it was definitely like, if it's the end of the world, I'm trying to end it with a little independence. <laughs> yeah, she moved out. She's just like a five-minute walk away, but she has her own apartment. And part of that, sex-positive parenting, is knowing that her partner is there. And we'll be taking a walk, and my partner go like, let's go check in on them. And I'm like, no, let's call first. So giving, again, that privacy, that autonomy, that empowerment to express yourself in your space however you would like to. I love that so much. And as a side note, 
I think it is such a beautiful sign of respect to call or text someone ahead before showing up at their door. Well, especially now during the pandemic, but regardless, I remember when my partner, who literally lived next door, would text me to see if I was around and wanted him to come by before he would just show up. I just think that is so awesome. It showed me how much that had not happened prior to that with other people. Sex-positive parenting also means talking about sex-specific topics when they come up or ought to come up. Jasmine's daughter living with her boyfriend has prompted that. And very casually, are you exploring different birth controls now? Now that you and your partner are going to be like day in and day out in each other's space, what is this going to look like for you? And we're having conversations like, yeah, I don't want to remember to take birth control every single day. Or now that we're probably going to be hooking up more often, I probably should have something that's a little bit more, you know, likely to, to cover me. Even having a conversation about politics and saying, hey, things are shifting in our country. You may want to start thinking about family planning a little bit differently because if your birth control doesn't work and you're not ready to plan a family, options may be limited nowadays. And so this is where we're helping our children make decisions for themselves in an informed way. And if they have questions with what's out there, you've already opened the door to be available to support them. That's what porn and parenting is about. Jasmine also speaks a great deal within her work about social liberation and social justice in the context of sexual empowerment. So I asked her to share a little bit about that interplay. When we think specifically about black and brown bodies in this country, I can definitely expand it to colonization across the world, but we are on a podcast that has but so much time, right? So we can keep it, we keep it centered to, to our country. Our bodies have not been our own. You know, being a part of the largest human trafficking system that uh, that has occurred in, in our history and understanding that that has generational and even current day implications on how we explore, how we see ourselves, how we see ourselves represented. Um, When I ask white counterparts about their first experience around sex and sexuality, oftentimes taking away traumatic experiences and just kind of talking about some kind of really lay on the surface conversations. It is having space to explore or seeing themselves represented in a, a film that maybe was a little too mature for their age, but they were able to see themselves in a beautiful way. You know, like, oh, I saw porn and the lady looked so beautiful and was, you know, being upheld or, or whatever. When I ask people of color about seeing themselves represented sexually, it is really frightening the objectification, the the perpetuation of negative stereotypes, the being only seen as the aggressor, being seen as completely objectified by body part or what that body part can do. So the big black cock or big asses and, and, and all of those kind of things, which like, yeah, definitely some people are well endowed in lots of areas, but we're not a monolith of people. I can type in ebony, right? Ebony porn right now. And I'm going to see a lot of the same body type objectified as what's glorified for ebony bodies. That is going to have a huge impact on how I see my smaller frame, how I see my stretch marks, what I can do with my butt and can't do with it. That has a huge impact on how I see what possibilities are available for my body. So when we've been living under these negative stereotypes and also The fetishized version of our bodies, big black cock, is coming to sully your white wife. 
these things play out in our interpersonal relationships. So talking about the impact of imagery and representation in our sexual literature, our sexual entertainment, and how it has a direct impact on when I date. Like, let's just say if I go on Tinder, I can guarantee you out of like 10 hits, five of them are going to say something about my black skin or wanting to see my booty twerk. I'm like 40 years old. I don't know how to twerk. I know how to pop and shake it. But (laughs) even, you know, like I don't have a big black cock. Will you still talk to me? Those ideas, they really do permeate our day to day experience in this world. And so challenging and stepping back and saying, you know, we're still subscribing to our oppressors ideas of our bodies. We are still subscribing to our oppressors views of what is beautiful, what is acceptable, what is expected. And it hurts us if we don't shift the lens. So being able to talk to black men about what it's like to be a submissive internally, but every single person that you meet wants you to like, pick them up and throw them against the wall and have some like consensual, non-consensual rape scene. Oh, that breaks my heart. Just to think about that and to think about a black man having this expectation, because we already have this obsession with penis size in our culture, right? And like the worst insult you can give to like a cis man is that he has a small penis, which is horrible. And then you add this very racist fetishization around that to have to carry that and also to have not been given the freedom to emotionally process and be sensitive about it sounds just very complicated. Absolutely. It, it really is. I mean, even for, you know, Black women and, and this idea of being over-sexualized, right? And uh, like always ready and, or, you know, good for nothing but making babies and all of those kind of like these tropes, we're surrounded with them. And then, you know, having a dry spell as, as a woman like that, like literally, like, I don't want to have sex all the time. And then going, is something wrong with me? Am I good enough? Like, maybe I'm disappointing my partner. It's like, no, you're just being human. You're literally stressed to the max. Of course you don't want sex right now. So yeah, um, having these conversations and being really open about showing these different types of sexual representations within my life, helping people explore these options that are available to them um, has been very liberating. And when you are starting with any liberation within self, it makes it a lot easier for you to start to see injustices outside of yourself. It certainly empowers you to be able to speak up and take as many other people on your journey with you. So that's kind of my, my method to my madness is if like I can like set one person free within themselves, then it'll have a ripple effect for all of us. Those ripple effects take many forms, and sometimes Jasmine hears a whole lot about them. She told me that in the 10 years that she and King have been working together in this capacity, She finds the longevity of relationships they've built over time the most fulfilling. She has witnessed so much personal evolution, including this example. Um, When I used to host these sex toy parties, I can remember like say one woman being like, oh my God, I don't know if I can put this inside of me, right? Fast forward 10 years, she's like, I'm really thinking about which dungeon I can get into during this time. And I'm like, look, Dungeons are closed right now. We need to explore how to socially distance BDSM. Remember that toy you bought 10 years ago? Like, let's just re-up on the batteries. Jasmine also told me about a straight black man she works with who sought support because he really wanted to be submissive sexually, but struggled with expectations to be the opposite and was always being approached in these aggressive ways. After working together for a time, he shared another desire. 
he wanted to do something that was very bold and outside of his body, like just kind of like, just I'm going to go for it. Um, and he asked if he could be featured in one of our films. And he was, he was featured as a male submissive in the film. We worked within his limits and I've been able to share with him the responses that that film has received saying it was so nice to see a black man as a submissive without him being degraded by his race without him being humiliated related to his penis size, like all of these different things that sometimes we get into our head. If I do this, then they're going to want me to do this. Or again, those expectations. And, and so sharing like, hey, this is how people are responding to you living in your truth and seeing that empower him. Like these are beautiful stories that just encourage me to like try more things. If you would like to deepen your own evolution and feel freer in your sexuality, Jasmine shared this advice. At the beginning of this conversation, I thought that that was incredibly important talking about shame. Um, and I know that that is so, so common. So if I had to leave the listeners with something that you could actually do right now that is going to be towards your sexual liberation, it would be to identify what makes you feel shameful. And think about where those messages came from. Think about who specifically, when you hear that voice, who do you picture? Is it your pastor? Is it your mother? Is it, you know, the bully down the block? Who is it? And then give that back to them. Just give that to them. That's your shame. That's actually not mine. I really don't feel that way now. 30 years later, I actually realized that has nothing to do with me. So just think about where you can give these messages back to. Also take a look and see where those people are with respect to their life. What I have found is looking at some of the people who gave me, whether it was their best intention or not, they gave me some really, really shitty advice or <laughs> shitty feelings about myself. And I look and I go, oh my goodness, you took your own advice and you're so unhappy. You took your own advice and you're alone. I'm going to go ahead and disconnect from that because the, the person that put that shame upon me is not doing well either. And that is what my future will be if I continue to allow that shame to consume me. So I, you know, I'm not saying you have to contact them and curse them out and, you know, give them just literally like give them their message back because it no longer serves you. We can give shame back because nine times out of 10, it's not ours to begin with. Learn more about Jasmine and her work at jetsettingjasmine.com. That's the safe for work site, she said, where you can learn about her therapy work, radio show, and sex positive parenting. You can find her triple X content, including explicit photos and videos, at royalfetishxxx.com. For this week's listener segment, I asked Dr. Megan Fleming to weigh in on a topic that someone suggested in my year-end survey, how to improve the sexual life of a couple when they are a wonderful match, except in bed. When many people say that they feel more like roommates, you know, some of the first questions I have is, you know, when did you start feeling or experiencing that? Importantly, did you have a great sex in the romantic phase of your relationship? And did you sort of feel like that shifted or dimmed sort of around one to two years in, which is around the time the romantic phase ends? And also, did the desire or quality of sex really change when you moved in together or perhaps even became more committed? And then I'm also curious, like, was sex never great? 
because I can honestly say even when sex was never great in a great relationship, that is, it doesn't equal it can't become great. But I'm going to be honest also in saying it's definitely easier to reignite a passion that was once versus trying to create something new. For some people, there's something we refer to as an erotic split, and it's also sort of known as the Madonna whore conflict. And it's in this dynamic that the desire and passion is in the wanting, and it's in the adventure, sort of the novelty, the adventure of a new relationship, and sort of the freedom to explore. You know, it's sort of like we seek adventure, but we also seek stability, security. So in the security, stability, comfort, closeness, intimacy of a relationship, For some, that is where the eroticism sort of is a challenge because there's sort of a weight around a responsibility for your partner's feelings or, you know, for some, a sense of that there's something wrong with experiencing and enjoying your sometimes politically incorrect fantasies and experiences with your partner. So along these lines, it's not uncommon that I hear the best, in a sense, most passionate sex that someone's ever had, honestly, hasn't really been from a quality of a relationship, not a great relationship. Of course, I could have a whole conversation around those dynamics, but to keep on with this question, a great resource I would definitely recommend is Esther Perel's book, which was called Mating in Captivity. I think it sort of speaks to some of these dynamics and would be a really helpful place to start. I would also say it's not uncommon for some of my clients who have a great relationship and feel more like roommates, they have young kids at home. And so for the partner who is staying at home, in some ways, they're getting all of their intimacy needs met during the day. And they're kind of exhausted and sort of feeling touched out and have nothing left in the evening for their partner. And so whether it's kids or work, the point here is to conserve energy and to save the best of yourself to be with your partner versus giving them sort of the leftovers and the breadcrumbs. I'm also curious if this is just an issue of desire or are there also difficulties with arousal, erection, and or orgasm? Because honestly, if there's stress and anxiety in your sexual relationship, this most definitely can have a negative impact on desire and the quality of your sex life. Then, of course, there's the question of how do you both define a great sex life? The majority of people, when they think about sex, they most often are thinking about desire and are often referring to that sense of wanting, right? That spontaneous desire. And I think that when that's not happening, they think that, quote unquote, something is wrong. But I can certainly say to you that there's another pathway, and it's based on the research of Rosemary Basson, of responsive desire, which is equally valid and way for couples to sort of explore their turn-ons and a pathway to great sex. So when your partner might initiate, your first gut response might be like, no. (laughs) I'm like, I kind of call it like a cold engine. It's not on your radar. You're not thinking about it. But when and if you sort of can say, hmm, is there one small thing I can say yes to? And so maybe it's massaging the shoulders or maybe it's stroking your hair, but it's ultimately it's through the body because it feels good in the body that the arousal kicks in. And then through the arousal, so does the desire. I think it's important to recognize, again, that there are many pathways to having a great sex life and it doesn't always come from spontaneous desire. And then another question, of course, I have is how important is sex to you both? Because the role and importance of sex compared to the quality of the relationship and the overall partnership really varies because for some couples, you know, it's not a big deal. And the statistics are about 20 to 30 percent of marriages are sexless, meaning sex less than 10 times a year. And for others, to be honest, not having a great sex life, it's a deal breaker. So what I can say is kind of In trying to answer this question, I feel like I'm only addressing the tip of the iceberg. But what I can say to you is if you want a great sex life to go with your great relationship, I highly recommend 
seeking a consultation with an ASEX certified sex therapist. And as always, would love to hear how it goes. Thanks so much, Dr. Megan. I feel like we could delve so deep into the points she brought up. I'm so fascinated by that interplay between comfort and security and eroticism in healthy relationships and that idea that the most adventurous sex, maybe even the most pleasurable, may be more likely to happen in not-so-healthy relationships. That made me think of several examples in the Dating a Sociopath or Narcissist series you may have caught here. Another way you might not feel compatible sexually with a partner could involve varying interests. Let's say one of you is really into BDSM and the other completely isn't. Or you love anal and dislike oral and your partner feels the opposite about both. In these cases, I think it can be really helpful to find fun compromises and workarounds so that both of your needs are met. And of course, a sex coach or therapist could really help you figure that out. As long as they're not deal breakers and both partners are willing, I think challenges in the sex department can really lead to the need for more creative exploration, which is usually a great thing. It brings more pleasure and it bolsters intimacy. I'll include questions related to these topics in my next survey on Patreon. So if you have thoughts or questions you would like to add to future conversations, about any of this. A lot of folks reply anonymously, and that is great. Please join me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash girlboner. For as little as two or five dollars a month, you can get access to the private feed that includes fun rewards like episode outtakes, pleasure guides to download that pair with certain episodes, behind the scenes fun, and more. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash girlboner or just click the link down in the show notes. And if you're enjoying the show, I would so appreciate a rating and review, and if you would tell a friend or two about it. Thank you so much for listening, and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.